Let me tell you a story, podcast number 124. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Our guest today, Wes Carey, and I share a last name because we're cousins, but that's where the similarity stops other than the fact that he's male and I'm female. Um, I grew up in a small Wyoming farm and ranch town, and he grew up in Portland, Oregon. So our early lives were quite different, despite the fact that our fathers were twins. Another very different aspect is that Wes is retired military, and I have no military experience. If I remember right, he served 32 years in the U.S. Navy, and that's what we want to talk about today. Because I happen to know he has all kinds of great stories to share with us. So welcome, Wes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I got plenty of them, so let's go. When you were young, did you dream of being in the Navy, or what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I think I wanted to be everything from a cowboy, you know, from Hopalong Cassidy to a fireman. But, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I never really thought about the Navy until I got a little bit older. Uh, being in Portland, that's uh, we hosted Navy ships for a festival called the Rose Festival every year. And I spent my time, as much as I could, talking to the young sailors. I found them quite interesting, their uniforms. And they also had sailors from different countries there, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. But uh, I was hosted to go down to the galley, and they had such incredible food. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. They had a Coke machine, and... I could get free coke. And <laughs> hearing their stories of Hong Kong, of Paris, of being in places, uh, you know, all over all over Europe and all over the West Pacific, I said, I, I want to see those places. And I, I wanted to do something more than being a kid from Portland, Oregon. So that started my desire to join the Navy. So you joined, you weren't drafted, because I think... Uh, you were kind of in that Vietnam era. You know, as much as uh, I would like to not tell you, but I was a high school dropout. I didn't, I wasn't doing well in school. My mother and father had divorced and uh, caused some confusion between me and my siblings. And You know, life wasn't as good as uh, it may have been for a young man. So I joined as soon as I could. And that was the day after I turned 17 in 1963. And oh. so I joined, I joined then and took off to boot camp. Boot camp was uh, in San Diego, California. I started my excitement as I was getting off the bus from the airplane. And there was uh, Jerry Lewis <laughs> getting out of a, <laughs> getting out of a, a red uh, Lincoln Continental. I thought, well, gee. I'm in the right company now. <laughs> so when I got in boot camp, I realized this was not home anymore. Um, things were a lot different. It was quite interesting for a young kid who 
really had not focused on discipline in his life, but the Navy gave me some. And after boot camp, I was stationed in San Diego, California, and I was sent to San Diego because I was a baseball player. And I had uh, told them how good I was. And I had a couple tryouts <laughs> where I obviously showed some talent. But as you mentioned before, those were the days of the draft. And everybody had to join the armed forces. And so did baseball players and football players, you know, people that were professional, that were really good at these things. But everybody had to do their service. And so the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, we, you know, we all had uh, teams that we played each other. And we played each other with very, very good talent. It was, a, it was a lot of fun to watch those games. But I was not as good as some of the pros that came aboard. So I spent a lot of time on the bench. And I had six months of uh, eligibility. And then you got transferred. And I got my orders. And it was to the USS Comstock out of Sasebo, Japan. So... <laughs> So that was really your assignment um, after boot camp yeah, was to, to play, play baseball? To play baseball. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, cool. and a lot of kids got that chance. But again, it was only a six-month month eligibility. But what I had signed up for was a minority cruise, mm -hmm. they called it. That means I, would, I was going to be there from the age of 17 till the age of 21. And at the age of 21... I got the opportunity to say, well, do I want to stick around or not? But so it was, uh, it was not the two-year requirement that happened to other young men or, you know, my other friends. I was in there for four. So mm -hmm. Japan was quite different. Plus, when I walked aboard my ship, I looked around and said, wow, this place is really clean. I wonder who keeps it so nice and clean. Well, <laughs> it wasn't long until I found out. I was at working end of a broom and up a swab, and I understood that's why they call them swabbies, you know. But, uh, and, you know, those were jobs that counted. It was very important that we actually did our job well. And it was surprising to me that uh, my supervisors actually instilled in me a little bit of pride in doing those jobs that I was doing. Yeah. But it's pretty you know, amazing. Number one, I. I I really didn't qualify for many other skills, being a high school dropout. But I had a, a young officer who would bring me in and talk to me, and he'd say, okay, you're going to get your GED. I didn't know what that was, but general educational development test. He says, then you'll be a high school graduate. And I said, well, that sounds easy. You know, let me take the test. Well, the first two test series were actually quite difficult. And I could see that, you know, this was not going to be an easy thing. Mm -hmm. But my buddies were going out on liberty. They were going out in uh, the good parts of Sasebo. The tests were easy to take if you just put down B, C, D, you know, just kind of wrote them down and did them real fast and didn't really spend the time you should in going over each question. So I basically just, you know, made up answers and just whizzed through mm -hmm. it. And I was ready to go on to go ashore with my friend. And the officer was very surprised. Wow. He says, man, you got through that fast. <laughs> Every time I took him, I just went through him. I realized that uh, I was quite used to being told that you flunked the test. So he came back and said, well, congratulations. You're a high school graduate. Wow. <laughs> and wow. the one that was surprised the most, of course, with me, and 
I was, well, thank you very much. And we went through each test area and I actually had scored fairly good. So I think that someone was guiding my hand. I have no idea, but I did quite, quite well. I have to owe it to him and uh, to a Navy chaplain who uh, also assisted me during, during that time. I used to have a, a very, very bad stutter. I still stutter, but it's not nearly as bad as it was when I was a young man. I don't remember My that. My stutter was so bad. That. Yeah, I couldn't really hold a sentence and I couldn't answer the telephone, you know, because I couldn't say hello right off, right off the bat. You, you not remembering it, it all dated to, back to me when my grandfather died because it was such a shock. It was my, my mother's father when he passed away. I'd never seen a dead person, but my stutter showed up approximately at that time. So it must have been, maybe it was connected. I don't know. Hmm. But the chaplain got me involved in Toastmasters, even though I was not old enough to be in Toastmasters. The, uh, the guys brought, brought me aboard. I found out that if I recorded something, I could just read something and not stutter. And so I did quite well in the enunciation, pronunciation, doing things properly. And, uh, you know, I was very thankful for that because it's, you know, his guidance sort of rewired the way that I presented things. So if, if I thought about it and, you know, during a presentation, if I was asking for something or uh, anything that I was doing in the Navy, I used the chaplain's advice. And I was able to, uh, you know, get through all of the the jokes and laughing that came to me because I was a person who stuttered. You know, my next duty station was across the world to uh, Newport, Rhode Island. I got there in November. Mm-hmm. And what I remember, it was cold, very, very cold. <laughs> there was snow on the ground, but the trees hadn't really shed their leaves yet completely. And it was seemed like it was a color with the flames of, you know, the of fall. And as I was taking a, a taxi cab ride from the airport in Warwick, Rhode Island, all the way to Newport, which I found out that most people took the bus for 25 cents. <laughs> so... Any, anyway, I got there and, you know, I was just so amazed at the beautiful colors. Being in the Pacific Northwest with all of the evergreens and my time in Japan was pretty much the same. I found that Japan, where I was at, was not so much different than the Pacific Northwest, you know, as far as the climate and uh, the Interesting. But uh, getting, there in, getting there in Rhode Island was quite different. People had a distinct accent, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes I would have a difficult time understanding anything they said, even though it was uh, it was done with perfect English. Uh, but their accent was considerably uh, different than anything I'd heard before. But eventually, I you know caught on and enjoyed myself there. But what was cool? I was on a ship called the Edward McDonald. DE 1043 was a brand new ship. Everything was, you know, brand new. Everything smelled good. And uh, we were making a number of trips out to test out the systems on the ship and that type of thing. And being on the ship for the first time, I was standing watchers on the bridge. And I was able to see 
the operations of what was going on, at least in that part of the ship. And my watches, which I stood uh, eight hours a day on watch, and I had four hours a day of the old familiar routine of cleaning things <laughs> up. But uh, I had an opportunity to actually be involved in the ship's mission. We took off, and because we were a brand-new anti-submarine warfare platform, we were chasing submarines. And the, the most identifiable foe of the U.S. Navy at that time was the, uh, the you know, Soviet Navy. And uh, we were chasing their submarines whenever we had the opportunity. And there was plenty of opportunities. They had plenty of subs, plenty off the coast, and plenty in our, in our other areas of operation. So that was exciting, you know, to chase a Soviet submarine until they surfaced. And it was also, you know, we, you know, also had to be difficult. It must have been difficult not to do things in such an extreme way that it caused a caused an incident or started a war. So, so you just were you chasing them away or what? No. Uh, once you start tracking a submarine, you can find out where the submarine's at, and uh, you you would do active and passive. Active would be putting out a sound, a, a blast of sound, which was quite, uh, which would be sonar. And the sonar, then the sound would bounce back and uh, give you some idea of where different objects were going to be in the water. There was uh, many different problems. You know, as you go down different layer depths in the water, you get sound barriers. So you had to, so we had uh, arrays of, of uh, transducers that made sounds that you, you would lower over the stern of the ship that, and we could lower them below layer depths. But once you got into a depth of water, you could deduct that sometimes for many miles and you would, could find out where a submarine was. Hmm. This was the newest and it was evidently quite good. We went into areas of operation which uh, U.S. Navy ships were not usually welcome mm-hmm. or I don't know if I could, if welcome would be, except that we weren't usually there. Like, for instance, the Baltic. We spent a number of time in northern European ports, which was quite cool. Mm-hmm. I thought the Swedish women were quite statuesque and beautiful. And so were the Norwegians. So were the Irish women. And so were the women in Germany. <laughs> I guess I kind of, you're catching on. I was, I was getting into that. so how much time did you spend at sea in those times you would spend maybe a month at sea and then you get four days ashore we would pull into a port and sometimes it was actually more ports than that we would go from port to port but we're we're getting ready for the time where the amount of fuel we used was quite a bit compared to fuel reserves and that that type of thing the Navy was a great user of uh, petroleum products. Mm-hmm. Fuel was becoming a dear resource for the, you know, for all of the world, and that was just sort of they would say, "Well, you've used your allocation of fuel at end of war." That was just a precursor to the days of rationing and that type of thing that oh. we had in the U.S. As far as the subs, if you knew where the subs were, did they know where you were? Did that put you at risk then? More than likely, although what's one of the things that we did as well, trying to evade submarines. 
Now, our primary job would have been, let's say, for instance, of a group of cargo ships taking cargo to England or to the Murmansk uh, trip uh, to Russia, like during the Second World World War. We would be escorting these groups, or would be we would be escorting an aircraft carrier. So we would know if they were tracking us and by finding submarines, passive and active ways that we would we would use. And we would chase a submarine when we could, and we would avoid one mm-hmm. when we could. But once we identified one, we would generally try to pursue it and bring it to the surface. Did you have torpedoes or what would you have done if some confrontation? Well, we had at that time something that was frightening. We had... Uh, we had torpedoes, and we also had anti-submarine rockets. Mm. We would fire them out of a rocket launcher. Now, one of these, the ASRock rocket is what, what they were called, also had a nuclear version. Mm. And if you, let's say war actually did happen, and you had uh, a Russian submarine or an enemy submarine, let's say, that was an, a ballistic missile submarine that had the ability to fire on the United States, we would ensure that it was destroyed. And with an anti-submarine rocket fired, you would ensure the Russian, you would ensure its destruction. But you would also ensure your own destruction. So it was definitely a, a suicide rocket. Wow. wow, yeah. Well, on the same ship, I'll just continue on that. We did a number of things where uh, we went to South America and what they called a UNITAS cruise, working with all the South American navies. And uh, I learned some Spanish. I, I had the opportunity at that time to realize how fortunate we were in the United States. That almost everything that as a young man I had taken for granted and the you know, the shortages of things are, that are, you know, perceived, whereas I didn't have enough cool stuff that I thought when I was a teenager. I saw people that didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. And it made me really sit back and think. When you go to some place like uh, Lima, Peru, I was a first-time petty officer, and I was uh, stationed at the hospital. And I was stationed at the hospital because if one of our sailors were hurt while they were on liberty, that was the first place they would bring them. <laughs> and I was in an emergency room there where they would take first people as an intake. And without exaggeration, I'm telling you that there was blood all over the floor. There were people that were laying on the floor that were in severe you know, states of emergency. And uh, they did not have the resources to take care of all these people at the same time. It was awful. Uh-huh. And it was not anything that resembled a hospital or how we were taken care of in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I, it was certainly something to think about. Also, during these times, when you have people speaking a different language and they're a different color than you, like my first assignment when we pulled into Puerto Rico, and as we started the UNITAS cruise, I had to look around and realize this was the first time in my life I'd been the member of a minority. Mm-hmm. I mean the thinking might have been, you know, these people don't even speak English. You know, that that would be something negative that it would not be unusual to hear a fellow shipmate say, or uh, look at everything's in Spanish. How do we know what to do? <laughs> we have had such a, uh, I guess, a charmed life in the United States, or I did living in Portland, even though 
I was not from a family that was well-to-do, possibly on the border of middle class, but uh, that would be even pushing it, was uh, much, much better than anyone that I'd seen, especially uh, after I went south. I've heard Americans are wealthy compared to almost everyone else in the world. Yes, almost everyone. I, during those years, I didn't see anyone that would compare to my life in the United States. So, we, Even when we're working with other navies, being aboard their ships, it was nothing compared to how we trained, how we prepared, how we maintained our equipment, how our clothes were cleaned, how our health, cleanliness, etc., compared to the rest of the world. We were just leaps and bounds ahead of that. Culturally, I found a big difference. We'd like to go back to education because you've talked about your bunk light education. Right. Would you like to expound on that? <laughs> well, once I went to the uh, the new ship, the Edward McDonald from the USS Comstock, I, I had a training officer who introduced me to USAFI, which is the United States Armed Forces Institute. And that is correspondence courses for young sailors or at sea to get them started doing their prerequisites for college. We didn't have any desks. <laughs> we didn't have any place where we could sit down, really. So the place that we had to do these courses were in our bunk. And every bunk, because I was on a newer ship then, had a bunk light. So we called it Bunk Light University. <laughs> Between that and Louis L'Amour, I found myself well-occupied on my off hours. <laughs> so you received a degree or two through that, right? Well, my f first degree, it took me 12 years. Mm -hmm. But that was after being stationed in a number of places, going to school through the PACE program, which was uh, allowing me to take courses on board base at a, uh, a college-sponsored you know, wing of their university. But I, I went through Inter-American University, Chaminade, and, uh, you know, that, that was in Hawaii, San Diego State, and University of Maryland. Through those 12 years, I managed to get a degree as a mechanical engineer. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. And, I, you know, the longest I actually spent at any school was at uh, University of Maryland. I spent nine straight months, but I had up to 18 months that I could have stayed there. But I had paced my training, and I was able to get out in nine, which was which was pretty good. Yeah. And I got my degree in 1980, which you know that's that's a long time after uh, that's actually 17 years, but it's 12 years after I started the program. But you did it. Yeah, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't flunk out, which was quite. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was. Uh, I was very very proud of that, and. Uh, that also changed the whole nature of my Navy experience. I was relatively senior as far as an enlisted man. And in 1980, I had also done two tours in Vietnam. I went to Vietnam in 1967. And uh, I spent 26 months there with leave in between and some vacation in between. But I was running river patrol boats. My specific rating or my area of expertise at that time was called a bosun's mate, which I was an expert at running small craft. I'm very proud of my ability to do that. I was very good. Bosun's mates, gunner's mates, and engineman, and hospital corpsmen were the Navy ratings that were really needed in Vietnam, although other ratings came in as well. We were the ones that ran the rivers, 
And we were sort of like the policemen of Vietnam's highways during that time. Hmm. Were you on PT-109? Well, not quite. (laughs) PT-109 would have been a pretty cool boat. Ours was (laughs) only 32 feet long. How many men on a boat that size? We had four men. Hmm. The four guys that were on it, they often changed uh, an obligation to go to Vietnam. And the Navy guys were all volunteers. You would volunteer, go through some, you know, significant amount of training in San Diego or in uh, Little Creek, Virginia. And once you completed your training, you went to Vietnam and you only had to be there one year or 13 months is how they, you know, counted it out. At your 13 months, you got to leave. You generally got to pick your next assignment. It was pretty cool. Well, yeah. after I'd been there, they offer you, hey, if you re-enlist, or not re-enlist, but if you obligate yourself for six more months in Vietnam, we'll let you go on vacation anywhere in the world you want for 30 days. <laughs> you know, so I remembered a young lady that I had met in Sweden <laughs> that, <laughs> that, you know, we'd been writing back and forth. I mean, you know, so she was, she was an attractive young lady and she was... Uh, she was just turning 18, so her father wouldn't be sh- chasing me off with his shotgun anymore. <laughs> so I was able to go there and visit, and uh, I actually had some saved funds. I was able to stay in a hotel. You know, we had a very, very nice, nice visit. And then I got 30 more days back home with my uh, with my family, my dad and my step stepmom and my sisters. And uh, that was uh, that was pretty cool. And then I went back to Vietnam. But going back to Vietnam was kind of a secret. Vietnam was not very popular. Mm-hmm. And that's something you really didn't, I, I didn't find out until I got to Sweden. I found out that that's not something I didn't brag about either. Vietnam was not a popular war. Right. And especially back in Portland, Oregon, which has always been kind of a, a liberal city. I didn't really go into it a lot, but I, I went back. I can remember coming into the uh, L.A. airport. We were driving from San Bernardino in a rental car. We got there. And as we were walking in, I was in uniform. There was this. There was a demonstration, and they were demonstrating against us. Oh. And some of the, you know, that was a shock. I just didn't, uh, I hadn't expected that. I was looking forward to the parades and things that, you know, World War guys got. And yeah, they were heroes. I made sure that I wore my, you know, Vietnam campaign ribbons were being shown. Um, but after a while, I took them off. <sighs> I just didn't want the hassle. That's sad. Yeah. Where did you choose to go after Vietnam? After Vietnam, I went to Puerto Rico. And it was an island, you know, I had been there before. It seemed like it was quite, quite nice. Um, I remember going in the Condado area, which was hotels and casinos, and, but it was beautiful beaches, incredibly beautiful mm-hmm. beaches. And I decided to go to go to Puerto Rico. Now, at that time, I was a chief petty officer. I'd gotten a meritorious promotion to chief, and I that happened while I was on leave, which was kind of <laughs> kind of cool at the Navy Reserve Center. Yeah, I was a chief petty officer. I wasn't thirty yet. I was still a young kid. I think it was 20, 24. Oh, that's a fast um, rise. Yeah. Puerto Rico was um, the job there. They sent me to school at Fort Gordon, Georgia, military uh, 
or you know CID school criminal investigator and that seemed pretty cool although it was kind of confusing because we had our own investigative service which is the naval naval investigative service but I was assigned to a security department onboard base as a criminal investigator and that was everything from wallet thefts to uh, something you know to drugs and it got to be the the thing that we're, we were dealing with most were drugs. A lot of guys coming back from Vietnam, which people ask me, well, a lot of, there was a lot of drugs for you in Vietnam, right? I cannot remember an instance of being offered drugs or seeing somebody using drugs in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, the Navy was a lot different. We were volunteers. I just didn't see it. But when in talking to the Marines and other people who had just come back, drugs were a problem. I remember the uh, marijuana at that time was a big problem with most of our Marines. And, uh, you know, finding large stashes of heroin was also shocking. It was not hard to follow the trail of drugs, of people using, you know, using drugs. Uh, we were paying snitches and that type of thing. The element that I worked in obviously changed from my initial stereotypes of Puerto Rico. <laughs> Well, I want to ask you about some just general thoughts about the Navy. But before we do that, just tell us some of your good stories. Huh, your favorite. Good stories. Well, I was able to be on two battleships, the USS Iowa and the USS Missouri. On the USS Iowa, I was commissioning ships bosun. And the chef we had on there in the ship's wardroom had been the chef at the Hilton in San Francisco. And during the Queen's Jubilee, he was, uh, the Secretary of the Navy was there. And he said, man, this food's great. And the guy told him about being in the Reserve Navy. So he eventually assigned him to the USS Iowa. So we had this incredible cook. Mm -hmm. But officers pay for their own food. So our mess bill was also quite high. <laughs> but the food, you, you won't believe it. We were in Kingston, Jamaica, and we had a special ward, wardroom dinner function. We had the president of uh, Jamaica aboard, but we also had Lady uh, Sarah Churchill. She was the granddaughter of Winston Churchill, and I was sitting next to her at the table, mm -hmm. and they had a number of other luminaries, and, and we had this uh, meal called Chicken Kaluviak, and it was flished, you know, shaped like a little chicken, you know, the pastry around it, and, you know, it was delicious, and she says, do you get to eat like this all the time, and I said, yeah. We do. And so she was She was quite impressed with our fare. And uh, she asked me, where are you going, these different places that you're going to be at? She says, oh, we're going to be going to these people's houses. And I, we told them another cocktail party we that we have to go to. Mm -hmm. And she says, you're not going to have any fun there. I says, what do you mean? She says, oh, you, you, you know, you find out. And I'm not going to go on into it anymore. And she was uh, just very, very nice. She says, I wish I'd known earlier. I had made something available to you guys. Hmm. So we went to the first cocktail party, and it was boring. I couldn't believe it. The civilians were on one side, and we were on the other side all looking at each other, and it was quite strange. There was a huge age difference. They were relatively old people, kind of like I am now. Hmm. But there was a colonel who was with the embassy, and I called him over, and I said, listen, do you know Lady Sarah's phone number? I said, it's an emergency that I get a hold of. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, sure. So he called her up. So I said, Lady Sarah, you were so right. 
I should have thought about this while we were talking together at dinner. This is not where we're supposed to be. And she says, Wes, I know what you're talking about. She says, how about you get about 12 of your friends and you come over to my house. We'll have a pool party. And I said, that sounds wonderful. So we got off the phone and I was thinking about it for a while. So I went to the colonel again. I said, sir, could you call Lady Sarah back? He says, yeah, well, you know, I says, it's, a, it's really important. He says, okay. So I got a hold of Lady Sarah and I says, is it okay if we bring our girlfriends? She says, oh, that would be lovely. It would be lovely. He said, Lady Sarah, we don't have any girlfriends. <laughs> we're, we're on a Navy ship. She's, oh, don't you worry. I'll take care of that. <laughs> so we got there and she had stocked the pool. Evidently she had some contacts, but it was it was quite a party, and we really enjoyed it. And I've always remembered Lady Sarah. Huh. That's great. <laughs> What's another one? I was on a destroyer, and we pulled into Athens, Georgia. And I put on a, uh, at that time, it was a blazer and a turtleneck was kind of cool. And so I looked very nice, and I was in a taxi cab, and I asked, where's a good place to go? He says, well, you're dressed like a gentleman. You should go to the Athens Hilton. So I went there, and I think a drink was like five bucks, and this was uh, in the years when I didn't have five bucks for a drink. But I went to the bar, sat down, and there was a gentleman sitting next to me who was turned around and said, hello, what's your name? I said, my name's Wes. He says, my name is Salem. I says, well, that's pretty cool. I said, like the cigarettes? He said, yes. And so we did a little small talk, and he finally told me he was from Kuwait. We had a couple of drinks and Salem was saying, no, they're on me. Don't worry. Every day I have a few friends up here and I'm glad to just post you. And I said, that's incredible. So here I am at the Athens Hill and we're overlooking the Acropolis. It's one of the most beautiful visions. They have a, It's a high rise hotel up there in the bar. You know, you're up at the top and you, it's just, it's, it's breathtaking, especially, you know, how they had it lighted up and it was very, very nice. So it turns out that Salem was from Kuwait, and he eventually said, let's go over and sit at a table. A number of ladies came over, and uh, seated next to me was a girl named Mary Saray. There was a lot of talking about, you know, the events that were going on. And I was in Athens during Carnival, which is quite an important time of year. It's very, very festive, and all kinds of activities are going on. Well, Mary Saray turns out that she was the daughter of Dr. Saray, who owned the Athens Casino, which was very, very close there. Mary looked at me and she says, oh, Wes, you're perfect. I said, what do you mean I'm perfect? She says, you have to be my date. <laughs> and so I'm like, I have to be, okay. She says, do you have a tuxedo? I said, no, I just have, a, this is the fanciest thing I got. And so Salem, who was listening to this, who turned out Salem was Abdul Karim, the Sultan of Aslan, <laughs> a part of Kuwaiti royalty and extremely wealthy. <laughs> but he uh, he looked at me and says, I'll take care of that, Mary. So after we had drinks, we all behaved as gentlemen. He gave me a room because he had the entire top floor of the Athens open. <laughs> and they had a tailor come and see me that evening about, well, I guess that morning about two o'clock. And did some measurements, saw me again about seven o'clock in the morning, did, did measurements, and was there the next day at noon when he delivered shirt, shoes, everything for a tuxedo. <laughs> and I have a tailor's tuxedo. Mm -hmm. So 
as I spent the day at the pool with Salem and, and his friends, uh, some of them were bodyguards and that type of thing. I uh, eventually, you know, went back up to my room, got into my tuxedo, and uh, I was able to, you know, Salem took me to pick up Mary Saray, and we then we were dropped off at the Athens Casino and taken in. We were put into a receiving line, and we had the ambassador from the United States to Greece. We had uh, the mayor and all these luminaries. I was next to uh, Dr. Saray, and then it was Mr. Car- Mr. Carey, which was me. And then Mary, and we were at the end of the receiving line. Coming through the receiving line was the Admiral to the Sixth Fleet and uh, our com- the commanding officer of my <laughs> ship. <laughs> and as they were brought through, they were introduced. This is Hubba Karim, Sultan of Asalem. And this is Mr. Carey from America. <laughs> and this is his date, Mary Saray. You know, and they're looking at me like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Chief, how did you get here? <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a pretty cool event for me. <laughs> but it was all from just being nice to somebody that I met in Athens. So what was that event? It was uh, a, a charity auction uh, for children in Athens. And they were auctioning up paintings of, you know, little etchings of Picasso and other art. I don't know if it was great art, whatever, but I, I wasn't able to buy any. But that was what was being done and uh, luminaries and wealthy people were given access to buy those things for wow. charity. Mm-hmm. Well, I got one more thing to tell you. Oh, okay. I was on the USS Missouri coming back from the Gulf War and uh, Kenny, and I think it was your dad, was uh, there to greet me when the ship came home. Hmm. Uh, and Frank was there, but, you know, and I'm not really sure about your dad, but you know, they came aboard. They had lunch with me, but the you know the welcoming crowd was absolutely gigantic when we came back from the Gulf. And the L.A. Raiders, which was, it was the L.A. Raiders then, their cheerleaders were brought aboard. I was the command duty officer that day. I couldn't go ashore, but I was in charge. So I invited the cheerleaders for lunch. <laughs> so, so my uncles kind of thought that was cool. <laughs> Once in a lifetime opportunity. <laughs> the next time that my dad came to visit, when he found me, I was on the forecastle, and there was this big long line of Chinese airline stewardesses, and they were there to get my autograph. <laughs> and it was it was just funny. I was because I was one of the few people they saw in uniform, and my dad looked at me and said, "You know, I don't think civilian life is going to be." Uh, you know, the same as this for you, because <laughs> I was I was getting close to retirement. And he said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> You're not going to like it out there. <laughs> so speaking of autographs, that reminds me that you were in a very famous movie. Do you need to tell us about that? Well, when we were coming back from the 50th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, we had some people aboard who were from Warner Brothers, where they were from actually steamroller productions. They were taking um, some stock footage of the USS Missouri, you know, with crew on board. And I began talking with Peter McGregor Scott, who was uh, the producer from the organization. And he was talking about a film they wanted to make. So it's all seemed pretty cool, but I was busy. I had things to do that day. So when we got back to Long Beach, I had a visit on the ship from uh, Peter McGregor Scott. He says, listen, we're representing Steven Seagal 
which uh, you know he was very popular in those in those days. In the this was 1991. I had the opportunity to uh, meet Steven Seagal at a club, and then from there I had invited him to have lunch aboard the Missouri. So he came to the Missouri to have lunch, which was the surprise of everyone. He was easily recognized and that type of thing. And uh, although one of the things that's normal in the Navy, people didn't recognize, you know, people didn't bother him or ask for his autograph. They kind of left him alone. We, we don't bug luminaries in the service. But anyway, they hired me at the time to help them prepare a script for a movie that they were going to call Dreadnought. Well, the movie eventually became Under Siege. Mm-hmm. And the movie Under Siege, I was the technical director. But because I was in the service, there was a lot, you know, I wasn't even sure if I was able to do that. I was able to get 90 days leave in between the USS Missouri and my next ship, the USS Camden, which allowed me to work on the film. But I really didn't know how much the Navy would not like it because, number one, the Navy had decided they did not want to work with the, with the uh, uh, filmmakers because we made some of the officers not look so good, mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, Gary Busey. So th- they really didn't uh, support that type of thing in the, you know, the movie. So it was me to try to make the USS Alabama look like the USS Missouri. And I got a chance to go to Fairhope, Alabama, where the movie was being made. And most of it was filmed there and on the USS Alabama in Mobile, Alabama. One of the most interesting things that happened was Gary Busey, who was, at the time, he was a substance abuser. I don't think this is a, um, something that's not well known, but he uh, he drank a lot. I believe it was alcohol that was his problem at that time. And he came into the set, which was at the Fairhope Airport, and he was driving a red Ferrari. He came in and spun out, and we're all looking at him thinking, man, I wish we had that Ferrari. But <laughs> right behind him was the Fairhope, Alabama Police Department <laughs> and Alabama State Troopers. <laughs> Evidently, he'd, he'd uh, gone a little bit faster than they usually see cars go through their town. <laughs> and they arrested Gary Busey. Well, the problem was he was going to be filmed all that day. And the amount of money that that would have cost the film company to have Gary Busey in jail and mm. all these people standing around doing nothing and so Every week, you know, they had a meeting and everybody would come up with questions. What, you know, what should we do? What do we do? You know, so I said, well, let me try. <laughs> so I put my uniform on. Mm-hmm. At the end of the movie, you can see there's this gentleman that leans over to one of the actors named Nick Mancuso. And he leans over to Nick Mancuso and he says, well, just blame it on the cook. Anyone who see, who's seen the movie probably remembers that ending. Well, the gentleman that says, let's blame it on the cook, was the mayor of Fairhope, Alabama. (laughs) If Gary Busey got out of jail, he got in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I had no idea. (laughs) Well, it's probably the first time this has been disclosed to the public. (laughs) Well, and you had a small part also, right? Uh, Yeah, I did have a small part. It was my first time in the movies. Of course, I didn't see many other movies, but it was kind of fun because um, I was still in the Navy as my shipmates had an opportunity to see Under Siege because it did feature an iconic American Navy ship 
And they were able to say, sir, we saw you in that movie last night. Or, uh, hey, sir, we were at a movie and we saw the, the trailer of a movie coming out. You were, you're going to be in a movie, you know? So that was, <laughs> that was kind of fun. And still today, <laughs> whenever they show it on TV, I'll get somebody send me an email saying, sir, were you in a movie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> so it's, it's been kind of, you know, kind of fun in the conversation. Sure, yeah. The Navy was a great fit for you. What kind of advice do you have for a youngster? Well, I've not, I haven't been in the other services. But what I can tell them about the Navy is that the Navy has probably, I believe, from what I've heard, the best educational opportunities. And for many of us uh, nowadays when we're looking at college, the terrible expense of going to college is uh, puts sort of us out of the picture. And so, the, you know, the opportunity of going, to, going in the Navy, you're going to technical schools. Everything aboard a Navy ship is electronic. Uh, we're using satellite uh, imagery, satellite communications. Everything is a tip of the spear. So I would say that in the Navy, the opportunities to learn a, to learn a trade, learn how to be a leader, or maybe it's just a follower. Uh, sometimes that's important. But you know, and to get a chance to travel. It's incredible. I would, uh, to be honest, I'd do it all over again. <laughs> so did you see most of the world? I was around the world before I was 21. I, it's not that I've seen amazing. everywhere, but, uh, you know, my tracks had taken me around the world. And I had a pretty good idea about from the Middle East to South Pacific to everywhere, including the Arctic Circle. And I was a shellback, too, before I was 21. So, you know, shellback means you've been across the equator, and uh, blue nose means you've been across the Arctic. Yeah, so. Oh, blue nose. <laughs> That's great. Being a blue nose, you know, if you can imagine, like we were in a place called the Vestfjord in Norway, and everybody's, uh, um, we had taken our clothes off, if you weren't a blue nose yet. And so... Did you jump in the water? No, you have to... When you're called upon, you have to go up to the forecastle, and all that day you've eaten blue food. I mean, the pancakes are blue, the eggs are blue, everything's blue. You go up there and you sit on this gigantic piece of ice, which is the icing, as they put a template over your nose and paint you blue. That means you can go down and get dressed. But being in the vest fjord, it was cold. <laughs> so, so almost all of us wow. were blue, but uh, that was the blue nose ceremony. <laughs> that was your rite of passage. A, that was a rite of rite of passage. Before your blue nose, you're banquet. So <laughs> only a bunch of guys would think of something like that. I know it's uh, you know. <laughs> now that we have females aboard ship, I imagine a number of those things have been changed. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. We probably still have rites of passage, just not. Uh, with a male perspective, only one we look at. Yes. <laughs> well, we would love to hear more, but we are out of time. Before we go, we would like to hear just a little bit about your involvement with nonprofits. And also, I know you have a site that supports veterans. So if you'd tell us a little bit about that and then give us websites where listeners can access those places. The AllAmericanMemorialFoundation.org is an area that uh, you can look at perhaps if you'd like to like to donate. But it was after 9-1-1 that the foundation was set up. 
It was to honor first responders of every uniform, uh, firemen, police department, all of the armed services, and to commemorate those holidays that we have in honoring veterans and first responders, everything from December 7th all the way through uh, Veterans Day and uh, uh, law, law Enforcement Memorial Day, you know, have a have a place for these ceremonies to be held. The first one we held, which which was in Bellevue, Washington, we had about 65 people. The last one we had about 3,000. So, you know, it's grown. We've uh, we're constructing memorials, which we've done in only three states. We would like them to be done in other places, where we uh, we find a an ideal location and we have events there. In addition, we're able to uh, assist. Uh, part of another part of the foundation is a, a you know, film. We uh, we try to do films, uh, documentaries that are positive to uh, the you know widows and families that are left behind when uh, someone is killed in action. Tell us that website again, please. All American Memorial Foundation. org. Okay. And your other organization? That's 5013cvideos.com. What does that group do? The 5013c videos is basically to assist nonprofits in telling their story, the story of the good they do and uh, the people that they help. And very often it's not their story that gets out. Uh, They haven't used some of the new ways to telling stories, which uh, uh, is often on the internet or is in film, uh, radio, television, etc. Uh, but we assist them in all areas of uh, uh, telling their story. We have nonprofit storytelling conferences, which we've had three. We plan to have more. Also, we're looking in at this point of also including faith-based organizations uh, to assist them in raising funds. A number of them are having difficulties keeping their you know bricks and mortar areas like churches and things like that still open. And the only way to do that is to get people coming into the sitting in the pews. So maybe we can help them as well. That would be great. Seems it's like you true. told me you have a conference coming up in January, is it? Yes. And it's going to be in Orlando. Um, when these conferences, they're usually filled up way in advance, thank goodness. And that's why we've decided to hold more. But one of the ways to get started, to see if you'd like to be involved in this, Movie Mondays, and I I, I wish my partner was here because he has all of the, but I think it's Movie Mondays. If they go on that, what we've done is we have interviewed some of the best fundraisers or best principals in different nonprofit organizations, and they've told the story of their organization and how they've been able to bring it to a success. Now, these are only 20-minute videos, but there's one every Monday. And as we brought these, uh, we also sell a CD with uh, all of the videos in there. We sell that at the end of the year. Now, these have been very, very uh, helpful to, uh, we hope, to many nonprofits. That's great. Unique ideas. We know some places that could use that kind of service. Well, we also sell a little uh, nonprofit storytelling guide for board members. And it's, you know, when you're in front of somebody who is a potential donor, uh, there's many things that you need to remember to tell the person, not only for the person that you're, t- his, 
his information, but he usually shares something that's important to many other people. And uh, it's important that some specific things are mentioned that you don't forget any. And it's the nonprofit storytelling for board members. And that's just a, it's a very small little guide. I believe it's uh, very, very cheap. So they won't have to worry about a big expense. And where is that available? On the 5013C videos. Done. Okay, great. Our time is up, but I want to ask you, just back up. You mentioned that you stuttered and that somebody got you into... Toastmasters. Yeah. So did Toastmasters cure your stuttering? Toastmasters didn't cure my stuttering, but they gave me tools to control it, I guess you could say. I still do stutter. It's just that I don't stutter in the same way. Everyone who is working in today's society has to be able to communicate. And that initial offering of help from a chaplain who got me able to communicate, it enabled me to be promoted so I could speak in front of a group of people. And I got to be where years later, people have asked me to speak in front of a larger group of people. I've been fortunate enough to be the guest speaker at a lot of organizations, being able to communicate in a group of people. There's many things that are available. I would recommend Toastmasters to anyone who is a worker who wants to get into management, who wants to be able to communicate better even to maybe to his own family. That's a great recommendation. It is. Well, this has been so fun to talk to you again, Wes. Thank you for sharing your your time and your life story with us. And we think our listeners will enjoy it too. That's right. And considering it's an internet call, it's done okay, I think. Anyway, thank you and good night. Yeah, good night. God bless. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.